0: In 1982, with the release of Fanny and Alexander, Ingmar Bergman announced his retirement from directing feature films, thus apparently bringing to a close one of the most celebrated careers in cinema. Thankfully, however, Fanny and Alexander didn't really mark an end, but rather a beginning, because it proved to be a source of inspiration to a filmmaker who, in 1998, would burst onto the world stage at the Cannes Film Festival. That filmmaker is Thomas Winterberg and his film was Festen. Here is Winterberg in 2013, speaking about the themes that connect his film with Bergman's final masterpiece.
1: A family is always a very ritualized organism. We do stuff like sitting around tables or dancing around Christmas trees. So there's always a lot of life to be told through those rituals. Families also implies past. You can always feel the past. You can always sense the film before the film when you witness a family. The family is the only institution in your life that you don't pick yourself. You're born into a situation. It implies faith, claustrophobic feelings, and yet maybe the strongest sense of love that you'll ever ever
0: experience. Bergman is not the only influence on Vinterberg's film. Feston opens with a very long shot of a man, Christian Klingenfeld Hansen, played by Ulrich Thomas, walking along a lonely country road. Speaking on his cell phone, he is on his way to a celebration marking his father's 60th birthday. Family and friends are gathering from far and wide to mark this special occasion. But, while all the guests are in good spirits, Christian appears to be brooding. While speaking on the phone, he had curiously predicted the celebration would be shocking. Christian says this because there is something rotten in the state of Denmark. That allusion may sound far-fetched, but Winterberg's masterpiece bears several similarities to William Shakespeare's Hamlet. While Feston gathers for the paterfamilia's birthday, Shakespeare's play marks the wedding of Hamlet's recently widowed mother, Gertrude, to his uncle Claudius. And while the prince broods over the death of his father, here Christian is mourning the death of his twin sister, Linda, who drowned just like Ophelia. While Hamlet suspects Claudius has murdered his father in order to seize the throne, Christian publicly denounces his father, Helga, played by Henning Moritzsen, accusing him of having sexually abused him and Linda while they were children. But just as Hamlet's sanity was doubted by all those around him, so too no one believes Christian. And just as Gertrude was in abject denial as to the possible cause of her late husband's death, so too does Christian's mother, Elsa, played by Bertha Neumann, sail about the party in such vaulted happiness, it is as if she were trying to blot out Christian's suffering. Furthermore, just as Claudius and Gertrude have Hamlet exiled to England, Christian is banished from the lodge where the celebrations are taking place. Just as Hamlet had his lifelong friend Horatio, so too does Christian have Kim, played by Bjarne Henriksen, whom Christian has known since childhood, and who now works as a chef in the kitchens to the lodge once owned by Christian's father. However, while Shakespeare's Prince suffers a tragic end, Vinterberg rewards Christian with a well-earned respite. Here is Vinterberg talking again about Fanny and Alexander, a film which depicts family trauma and a different sort of child abuse.
1: Oh, there's a lot of stuff I've stolen from (laughs) Bergman.
0: I had the privilege
1: of having a long conversation with him at at some point um, where he gave me some really good advice that I've been following since. And well, there's one scene in particular, in Feston where they dance around the house, they do exactly the same in Fanny and Alexander. We talked about that, and uh, he laughed and and claimed that he stole it from the leopard himself. So it's, it's all done in admiration.
0: Winterberg, Bergman, Visconti. That is an unexpected lineage. But however unexpected, it is somehow appropriate. While well, Visconti's 1963 masterpiece, The Leopard, is an historical drama covering the years that saw the creation of Italy. It is actually Visconti's earlier works, specifically Ossessione and La Terra Trema, that are more pertinent here. Visconti was one of the founders of the Neorealist movement, which sought to wrestle Italian cinema free from the yoke of Mussolini's tyranny. As such, Neorealism was ideologically driven, a reaction against Mussolini's fascist regime that had controlled the country with an iron fist since 1922. A year before Mussolini was deposed and killed in 1943, Marxist screenwriter Cesare Zavattini had called for a new kind of Italian film. One that would put an end to contrived plots, dispense with professional actors and step out of the studios and onto the streets, all with the aim of establishing a closer connection with everyday life. All of which culminated in a documentary field proceedings, as though unscripted events were unfolding spontaneously in front of the camera. Festum belongs to the Dogma 95 movement, the contentious but crucial 10-point manifesto written by Winterberg and Lars von Trier. 1. Shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. 2. The sound must never be produced apart from the image, or vice versa. 3. The camera must be handheld; Any movement or mobility attainable in the hand is permitted. 4. The film must be in colour. Special lighting is not acceptable. 5. Optical work and filters are forbidden. 6. The film must not contain superficial action. 7. Temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. 8. Genre movies are not acceptable. 9. The film format must be Academy 35mm. 10. The director must not be credited. Here is Winterberg once more, this time from 2016, speaking with Thomas Oberwender, director of the Berliner Festspiele at an event called The Director Must Not Be Credited.
1: I guess filmmaking is the most conventional and conservative art form that you can find, still, or even more so today.
0: Why do you say that?
1: Because it it tends to be very professionalised. People excuse it because it's because it costs money, but I don't think that's the reason. There's a certain language in the industry that, that strains it down to becoming, you know, conventionalized. But we, we tried back then desperately to uh, liberate ourselves by restraining ourselves.
0: But it wasn't just the neorealists who inspired Dogma 95. It was also the French New Wave. While La Nouvelle Vague did not appear on screens until the late 1950s and early 60s, with films such as Le Beau Serge, The 400 Blows and The Bout de Souffle, its goals were laid out several years earlier in a series of essays written by the directors of those films, Claude Chabrol, François Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard. Both the essays published in Cahiers du Cinema and the subsequent films each demonstrated an emotional honesty and personal intimacy that cinema had not seen before. However, when discussing the origins of Dogma 95, one filmmaker who is often overlooked is John Cassavetes, which is somewhat strange since Cassavetes emerged on the other side of the Atlantic at exactly the same time as the French Triumvirate. Born in New York, Cassavetes is the pioneer of independent American film, a cinema that not only existed outside of the Hollywood studio system, but also presented content and used techniques utterly at odds with the studio's aesthetic. Cassavetes had begun his career as an acting coach, delivering classes in direct opposition to the Method School set up by Lee Strasberg. And it was from one of Cassavetes' workshops on improvisation that his first film sprang. Is everybody going to sit around here all day? Dennis, stop that, will you? It makes me sick. What's the matter with you, Tom? I got a hangover, that's what's the matter. Hangover? That's what you get for staying out all night.
1: Who takes care of your sister when you're all night? Man, I hire a babysitter. Don't I hire a babysitter for you, sweetheart? David's yeah. writing a new novel all about you, Ben. It better not be any of that Pete Generation jazz like the last one. Hmm.
0: Shadows centres on a light-skinned African-American woman, Lilia, played by Lilia Galdoni, who starts dating a white man, Tony, played by Anthony Ray. But when Tony discovers that Lilia has a brother who is black, he dumps her. Now, consider the moment in Feston, when Christian's surviving sister, Helena, played by Paprika Steen, greets her boyfriend, Batoke, played by Batoke Dakina, and brings him in to take part in the family celebrations. And also note Vinterberg's decision to name the character after the actor himself, just as Cassavetes had done in his cast. Cassavetes had developed his idea over two years, eventually shooting in a manner that would now be described as guerrilla filmmaking. Handheld cameras filming in natural lighting on location. Upon seeing Cassavetes' film, American avant-garde film critic Jonas Mekas published a manifesto. A call for a new generation of filmmakers, declared Shadows, would lead a new populist and popular independent cinema movement that would replace the moribund, bloated, pompous productions that Hollywood was so intent on making. Here is Cassavetes speaking in 1983, explaining his motivations for acting and filmmaking.
1: What I think what everybody needs is a, is a way to say where and how can I love, can I be in love so that I can live that I can live with some degree of peace, you know. And I, I guess every picture we've ever done has been in a way to try to find some kind of philosophy uh, for the characters in the film.
0: Feston was the first film to be released with the Dogma 95 certificate. Outside of a film securing a classification permitting its distribution, the idea of a film securing any sort of certificate sounds absurd. Or perhaps it is meant to be playful. For instance, why did Vinterberg and von Trier call it dogma? It instantly sounds religious, a creed, a doctrine, a code of beliefs that involve, well, von Trier and Vinterberg did call them Ten Commandments, a vow of chastity. But why 95? Because in March 1995, a conference took place in Paris to mark not only the centenary of cinema, but also debate its future. One of the dogma tenets states genre movies are not acceptable. However, Feston could be very easily described as a melodrama, and in particular, one centering around family trauma. In the traditional melodrama, the audience becomes aware of the trauma by a series of hints and intimations. From there, the audience's suspicion is aroused, and a loose detective structure evolves through which the events that cause the trauma are gradually revealed. And quite often, it is through counselling with a psychiatrist, one well versed in Sigmund Freud's theories, that the events are finally exposed and the suffering eased. We can see this in films such as Irving Rapper's *Now Voyager*, Alfred Hitchcock's *Spellbound*, Robert Redford's *Ordinary People*, Barbara Streisand's *The Prince of Tides*, Gus Van Sant's *Goodwill Hunting*, and Denzel Washington's *Antoine Fisher*.
1: You feeling under pressure? You feel like uh, a rock is on top of you? Come on now, speak the hell up! You better make it snappy. You only got three sessions coming. What are y'all looking at? What you looking at? You feeling sick? You need a healing? You need a healing? Do you need a healing? Huh? Do you need a healing? Some of y'all sick ass sailors need to come back after working hours. See, that's when the good doctor, Davenport, he'll be laying his hands on you, or he may have a book in there that may have the answers to all your problems and all your questions. Ain't that right?
0: But Festen is different. Feston has no doctor, offers no counseling, and does not tease the audience with gradually unveiling the mystery. Instead, Vinterberg and his fellow writer, Bogans Rukov, launch straight into the horror by having Christian announce it without hesitation. And from there, it is up to Christian, with the support of the staff at the Lodge, that he struggles through the celebration. And I think it is in those moments that Winterberg pushes the story beyond its confines of a melodrama, and ensures that it isn't really a genre picture. In order to release Christian from his plight, the kitchen staff conspire to hide the car keys of all the guests, so they cannot leave and are therefore compelled to listen to and consider Christian's testimony. And that event reminds me of another film where people gather for a celebration but find they cannot leave. Louis Bunwell's The Exterminating Angel. Although filmed in Mexico, The location for the celebration is never explicitly declared, but it is hinted that the setting is really Spain, and the reason why the dinner party has been convened is to commemorate General Franco's victory in the Spanish Civil War. But once those celebrations begin, the guests find they cannot leave. Again, although never explicitly declared, this could be an expression of fascism being a cultural, political and ideological trap. So that illusion expands, Feston into the socio-political sphere. Whether it be Denmark or, like Bunuel's story, some unnamed country, something really is rotten in the state. Just how rotten is evident from the opening minutes. Shot exclusively on a Sony DCR by cinematographer Anthony Dodd-Mantle, the image is so restless as to border on the nauseous. And added to that is an extremely agitated editing style Delivered by Valdis Oscardotter. Dutter Festin was awarded the Jury Prize at the 1998 Cannes Film Festival and in the years since, it has proven to be one of the great films. Not just one of the great Cannes films, or one of the great Danish films, or even Dogma films. Festen is simply one of the great films.